Wanderings Universe have my buddy and former council person for me in Jersey City. I moved to a different part of Jersey City, James Solomon, on this episode. And James does it all. He balances, you know, a beautiful family of three, being a civil servant here in Jersey City with progressive values, which certainly were I aligned, and just being a kind and generous person. So very thrilled to have James on so we can a lot of the episode is talking about, you know, how he got into, you know, civil service and, and politics and what the values he uses to serve. And it's just really excited to have James Spares share some time with me today. Just so y'all know, I started a book publishing company called Leverage Publishing Group. And check us out at leveragepublishinggroup.com. We ghostwrite, edit, and publish first-time authors. Peace. Rondering's universe. What is going on? I'm excited having my cup of coffee near me because I don't usually record these in the morning, but in order to get someone extraordinarily busy and at least in Jersey City politics, politically prominent, like my friend and former councilman, James Solomon on the mic, I had to do it in the morning. So welcome, James, to the Rondering's podcast. How you doing? I'm wonderful, Ron. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I want folks to know this. James is one of the kindest people that I know. And I'm not only saying that because he's my former councilman, right? He's just someone that even before he ran for office, James, you and I obviously know each other through your amazing wife, Gabby, but we used to run into each other at local coffee restaurant spot, Gia Gelato, all the time. All the time. <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. That was one of our go-to, go-to spots. Yeah. And, and so there's a couple of playgrounds as well. Yes, so, yes, okay. yes, absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure having you, James. So like I do with every one of my incredible guests, what is your story? What is James Solomon's story? <laughs> that is a great question. I appreciate it, Ron. It is a fascinating uh, uh, question to be asked because, you know, politics, you tell your story all the time. Yes. Um, but you're also doing so in a way in which, you know, you're, you're thinking about kind of uh, the electoral and, and policy worlds that you're in. But I think for me, you know, I, I feel like my story is one where, where I feel like I was very lucky, blessed. I've had a lot of things go go well and, and to try to give back through that. So, mm. you know, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, when I was 18, I uh, vowed never to return and see how it, <laughs> what that happened. So I, Full circle, I, uh, you're back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I joke sometimes that I, I tried being happy in other parts of the world, but it wasn't for me. So I had to come back to New Jersey where I could uh, be grumpy and Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, we love New Jersey. It's the best state in the country. But yeah, but basically, I, I've always had a passion for, for government and public service. And in my early 20s, that uh, developed into a passion for city government, because city government is, is where the work is tangible. You feel the impact of your local government on a day-to-day basis more than anything else. Of course, the national government is, is you know the one that has the biggest impact on global national events, but day-to-day, whether the roads are, are smooth and the trash is picked up and your kid's school is mm. performing effectively. Those are the things you feel every single day. And I love that. I love how tangible it was. So I went to school, graduate school. I studied it, worked uh, in Boston for a few years. And then Gabby, my lovely wife, who you worked with, yes. moved us back to New Jersey, moved us back to my my home, home state uh, when she took a job here. And um, I was trying to figure out how I wanted to get involved in New Jersey world. And then um, kind of life life hit me with a little bit of a, a curveball. So I got diagnosed with lymphoma. I was 30. It happened 
literally uh, like a month after we had gotten married. So it was, it was a very sort of sudden surprising moment. Um, then I got really lucky. You know, I had a type of lymphoma that they have very good treatments for, was able to in six months be in full remission. And I've been in full remission now for eight years. But I had one of those life is short moments. I was like, you know, I've always been interested in city government, city politics. Why don't I just run for office and try to be the councilman? Mm. In particular, because it wasn't just I wanted to do it, that was part of it. I thought that there were things that the current councilwoman at the time serving wasn't doing. She wasn't trying to get affordable housing built in Jersey City. She wasn't pushing hard enough for street safety reforms. And there's more broadly, she wasn't fighting for progressive values. She was very moderate, very nice person, very moderate, and wasn't wasn't really fighting for things that I wanted my council person to be fighting for. And this was, you know, right, right as Trump had gotten elected and was starting his first term. So I got better, uh, decided to run for office and was able to win in 2017 and now have been serving on city council for roughly six years. Uh, and I feel like uh, I'm really, there's ups and downs, but I'm really, really glad that I've done it. And then just as importantly, the other thing when I got sick, I said I wanted to do was have a family. So when I got better, mm-hmm. Gabby and I, um, we have three beautiful daughters, Camila, Kurt, and Noel. Yes. And I, I joke that uh, right now I have three things that I can talk to anyone about. I can talk about Jersey City politics and policy. I can talk about Bluey and anything related to children's shows. <laughs> and, I, and, then, and then the one thing, and the one thing I've yeah. kept is fantasy football. That's my third topic. <laughs> but um, I joke, but the, but in some ways, mm-hmm. the, you know, the two things I really wanted were were public service in Jersey City and a family. And so that's that's sort of the things that I'm I'm deeply invested in, and the things that are sort of the core to who I am and, and what I'm doing. Yeah. So James, I didn't realize this. I had to check. Your, your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. So anytime I, I, I talk to a guest, I get curious, like, hmm, I should check their LinkedIn profile, make sure I'm not missing anything that I might right. want to talk about in the episode. And I realized that we are Coro alumni. I didn't realize you did Coro in St. Louis. So I, I can't help but think that perhaps, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, some of your spark for public service started being a Coro alum in St. Louis. And talk to us about that part of your right. beginning of your post-college life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Coro is a, a leadership fellowship in five cities across the country. And, and I was in St. Louis when I didn't mind. Mm-hmm. And it places you in, in different sectors. You do private sector, public sector, a nonprofit sector, um, sort of six-week projects, so to speak, while you're being sort of trained. And yeah. um, it was just an extraordinarily valuable time for me to think about how to be an effective leader and, and how to see impacts that you're doing in the world. So I really feel very lucky that I got to do that. And some of my closest friends are, are from the program. And core also gives you kind of real tools to sort of yeah. stop and, and really think yeah. very thoughtfully and strategically. Uh, it's simple stuff, nothing crazy, but you know, you know, uh, the simplest thing, just stopping yourself and saying, what is going on here? Don't, don't, don't overinterpret. Stay very grounded. Think about the exact things that people are saying and doing. Don't put your interpretation on them. Stay, stay at that level to then think about how you want to accomplish things. So I love the core program and it was a really wonderful experience for me. Mm. I, I've had this want, James. I don't know if I've told you this through all the conversations um, you and I have had, but I've wanted to see Caro come to Jersey City. I mean, right, yes. across, right across the what? So we should talk about that offline because, frankly, I think, I, I mean, granted, I know there's New Leaders Council, which you also went through, but something like the brand of the Caro program, I think, could be incredibly valuable to start building this love of public service that I think so many young people tend to have, but not sure what outlets that they could do it in. So we should, hopefully we can figure I, that out I'm, together. I'm happy, <laughs> I'm happy to have that conversation. Yeah. There are so many talented young folks in Jersey City. I'd love to get them in a, in a program like that. Yeah. 
But James, walk me. I, I, I get curious about this, right? Was there anything, yeah. a moment from the way you grew up in New Jersey or other things that got you to say, you know what? Public service is in my bones. Like from the time I've known you since seeing you, I always knew yeah. like James is so passionate about yeah. public service and, you know, city politics. But were there moments growing up where it was just like, this is it for me? Well, I, I joke a little bit now being like, when I got involved, I had no idea truly what New Jersey politics were like. And, <laughs> oh, you know, there, there's, like national the stereoty- there's, na- there's, na- there's national stereotypes of of, uh, of what it is. And, and yeah. you know, they're, sometimes they're not far off. I got to be honest. Some of, the, some of the moments have been, been nutty. But I think for whatever reason, I, I, I was always drawn to politics and public service as mm-hmm. a kid, right? And, you know, sometimes I feel lucky because I certainly know folks who you have so many interests, but, but it was never clear. And for me, it was always just clear in a way that mm-hmm. I just feel like I got lucky. So I mean, I joked that, but it was true. Like in, in, when I was 12, I was fascinated by the 1996 Republican primary and, you know, Bob Dole and, wow. Buchanan Holy and goodness. you know, it's, yeah. it, it was so nerdy, but like, I, yeah. I was just fascinated by it. I was mm-hmm. really interested in what was going on. Um, so I always knew that this was a passion of mine and it, and it was right then in my early twenties when I did choral program, um, when I uh, taught a little bit in St. Louis, that 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 it, it flipped to the focus on cities. Where I grew up in the suburbs, suburbs are lovely places to raise your kids. Um, but I, I do feel suburbs can be, you know, particularly like kind of a you know upper income suburbs are are people remove themselves from the world there in a way, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you're able to remove yourselves from from you know kind of our country. And and for me, cities are the places where we are all together and we make it, we have to make it work for better or worse. Yeah. And then I just love how tangible city government public service was. You know, you know, if you're doing a good job or a bad job, right? People stop you all the time, right? In the grocery store, walking down the street, (laughs) 99% of the time. You're like literally no offense to Mayor Fula, but like, you're like the mayor of downtown. People always like pulling you aside. It's like, it's a thing. And, and 99% of the time, everyone is super thoughtful and respectful, but yes. they, they're asking for things uh, for you to help them. And, yes. and you know, there, there are certainly, there's a, you know, a service aspect to that, right? Where you, you have to be on and you've got to listen and you've got to process, but it's also a real gift, right? To get to help mm. the community that you live in, in such a tangible way and then see it, right? Hey, we got the stop sign on that intersection. It is now safer, right? You know, I mean, to give you an example, a block from where I live, you know, uh, a guy who see a coffee shop, to see a drop off for kids at daycare. You know, his, his mother-in-law was hit by a car at a s- intersection that didn't have a stop sign. Jesus. And he was, he, she, she ended up being okay. He had to go to the hospital, but no, no long-term damage as far as I believe. And, you know, he was upset. He was like, why hasn't the stop sign been there? You know, you know, this intersection is unsafe. And, you know, in our end, you know, you know, the realities of government, that there's too many things and not enough resources, but then you, you also, then you figure out how to push. And then, you know, four or five months later, we got the stop sign up. That intersection is much safer. And, and you can feel that impact. And that that is the the beauty of kind of doing this type of work. So, you know, all, going all the way back, you had said kind of like, was there a moment? For me, it wasn't a moment. It was just, I had always been, been sort of drawn to it. It had always been something that sparked who I was. And then I just sort of pursued different ways to explore it through my, you know, teens and early 20s. And then found, I think, the right thing for me, which was the city government yeah. Uh, yeah. work. Yeah, James, something that's always struck me about you is your level of responsiveness. Like, so if I rewind back in time to all the times I've ever interacted with politicians growing, particularly in New York City, which is a different political animal altogether. (laughs) We won't talk about some of the things happening in my my hometown (laughs) city. (laughs) It's a mess, right? Yeah, it is. But responsiveness was never something I equated with a politician. Like, they're just this... uh, 
figure that like sort of does things. I'm not quite sure what their impact is. They have talking points, but you on the other hand have always been responsive. Where does that come from? Like this, this notion of like, like I've always seen you and maybe I'm biased here, right? Is wanting to follow through with something that someone has asked you to do. I just, it's not something that I think is common. So where does that come from for you? I appreciate that. Uh, I'll start with just a, a, a true, a true, true thing, which is my responsiveness declines a little bit after each child. So we'd have three, uh, three <laughs> girls, and uh, so he's a little, a little bit, a little bit less responsive. But um, yeah, no, it, so it comes from I think two, two things: one, one strategic, and one personal. So the, the strategic one is I worked for two years uh, for Mayor Tom Menino, uh, who was the long-serving twenty-year mayor of Boston. Yeah, and, and his nickname was the Urban Mechanic, and what that signified was he's going to fix every city problem. And he was known for just driving around the city. And if you saw anything out of whack, picking up the phone and being like, the pothole is you know, not filled on, you know, uh, uh, cast the, uh, you know, this playground in Dorchester, you know, doesn't have a, a fence up. And, you know, I'm not sure it's the, like most, the best system for the mayor to just be calling up people <laughs> in city hall and being like, this is, isn't here. But the, the core, the core of it is, is exactly right of city government, which is city government is that level where you're directly connected to people. And if you solve those little problems, they feel it and they see it. And then that allows, builds trust between citizens and government. And then I think it allows you to, to do more things in government, it allows you to explore different types of policies that might be more, you know, kind of, if people trust you, they're gonna give you more leeway to, to do different things. Mm-hmm. So strategically, I think that that is like the right foundation of city government. And then on a personal level, it's like the thing that draws you into the work is that ability to help people and solve people's problems. I think other folks may be drawn into politics a little bit more. They, they love the ideas or they love the power and all those types of things. And, and look, everybody you know, is a mix of different things they want. But for me, the thing I can really get out of this, like at the end of the day, it's like, well, why do you do it? Given that there's lots of negatives to kind of being a, a, in political life is that you really get to help people. And so for me, it's like, well, if I, if you tell me something that I can actually solve that problem, mm. that makes, that's great. That's why yeah. I put up with all the other stuff. So just right. as, a, as a human being, that's the thing that drives me. Yeah. And, and last but not least, you know, Jersey City is small enough. We're 300,000 people. Each council member represents about, you know, 50, 60,000 yeah. uh, folks. Th- that is a scale, which is big, but it's small enough where you, you can really be a presence, right? If I had to represent a million people, you just can't do that, right? Um, you know, congressional district of X hundred thousand people. You can try, you can do your best, but but the city the city level is, I think, the level where where that is doable. Thanks for sharing that. It makes a lot of sense yeah. from what I've known about you, and I appreciate just yeah. the level of that response in terms of I didn't know that about Mayor Tommy's reputation. Yeah. It made me think of where you spent some time. I think if I saw on your LinkedIn, you were an innovation fellow for then yeah. Mayor Booker. In Newark, and I know from my time working Newark Public Schools with your wife Gabby that that was certainly part of his reputation, the Superman thing. It was like literally, yeah. like almost like, which may not once again strategically be the best approach for a mayor in a big enough city, and yet that level of being seen and heard, I think, has its has its positives for sure. Absolutely, and, and Mayor Booker did it in in uh, in, in his way. Um, when he was mayor, I mean, he was kind of the first, you, you know, he was the first like great Twitter user, um, at least in local government. Uh, yeah, he was, that's right. he was, he oh, was, that was his passion. It's different. Yeah. You know, the, uh, you know, he, he uses social media differently now, but, um, it, it was, that's the same core idea, right? You know, he's, he was using kind of a unique media strategy, I think, to communicate that, but like, Hey, I'm going to go shovel out your, your house when you're caught in the snowstorm <laughs> right. again. 
probably not the like best systematized way to solve these problems, but, but it does convey a a core point, which is I'm here to serve you. You, you reach out to me. I'm going to find a way to solve your problem. And that that means I'm literally going to dig you out. I'm going to go dig you out of, of the snowstorm. And, and he did it really, really well. Now the work I actually did for him was actually trying to create the system. So we were were basically trying to do what's called city, city stat, which originated in Baltimore in the two thousands, but basically using kind of data and performance analysis to, Mm. you know, Yes, you know, we filled this one pothole because somebody called us, but, you know, did we fill hundreds of potholes in ways that were, you know, uh, up to par? So that was the the, the project that I worked on for him um, when I was there. But, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. And, and it was a great experience. And I, I you know, I was only there for, for, you know, a short period of time, but but loved the work. Yeah. So, James, you're also a teacher. I know that you have a number of adjunct professorialships, if that's even yep. the right way to say that. Talk to me about your teaching and what that does for you. I love it. So I teach, depending on the semester, maybe one course, maybe two courses. But I teach, and I have taught at three Jersey City universities. So mm. New Jersey City University, St. Peter's University, and Hudson County Community College. Mm. And it's kind of the first thing that I, I kind of found a job doing when I moved to Jersey City back when Gabby got her job in Newark. And I was sort of figuring out, hey, I left my job in Boston you know, the important values point of, you know, I wanted to support her career and her job. So I came to Jersey City and, and figured out what I was going to do here. But uh, the reason I've done it is a couple things. One, it just, I love teaching. Um, and I love teaching college students. It's, it's you know, yeah. college students are adults. They're, they can intellectually process everything that, you know, anyone else, like they're, they're, they're ready to think about every big issue that they're facing, that the world is facing. And so, you know, getting really kind of to introduce new concepts and, and sort of spark their critical thinking is a, a joy. And then I get to teach what I love, which is city government. So I teach urban politics, state local government, sometimes American politics more, more broadly. Um, but for me, it's a great sounding board to hear students, you know, kind of disconnected from the kind of political world. But just see how they're processing what they're seeing. You know, mm-hmm. Most of my students are either from Jersey City or Hudson County. So right. they see yes. what what's going on. And it's a great great kind of kind of gut check for me you know not like i'm in the classroom going like here's my policy proposal but you know, you bounce ideas off folks you, you yeah. sort of see where they're where they're thinking mm. is and that's been invaluable for me to just hear what they're doing and then you know you get to you get to be a mentor so you get to um, have students uh support their careers you know write them recommendations try try to help them you know get where they want to go so do all those things is just great and, and so i really love teaching and you know, it's always a time balance with the, with the public service job and the kids of how yes. much can I teach each semester. But yeah, I love it. And, and hopefully, you know, for as long as I'm, I'm working, I want to at least be be doing a little bit of teaching. It fascinates me that you do that, right? Because there's this level of you're a practitioner and yep. yet you are teaching. So I imagine knowing Jersey City strong hashtag, right? That, you know, yeah. Jersey City college students may come at you with things and like really push your thinking. Is there a moment where like you would talk, there was something you talked about in the class or like the students in that classroom shifted your perspective on something you ended up putting into policy or pushing into policy? That's a really good question. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing, you know, core thing that the students talk about is housing, right? I mean, the yeah. many talked about. Yeah. But it oh, is, God. I mean, James, yep housing and gentrification right you know i grew up in the city you know my mom my aunt my uncle yeah. you know mm-hmm. rent has gone up 15 percent one year taxes have gone up 15 20 percent one year they can't stay the store that my uncle owned has been sold and changed to something else 
those are the types of things that the experiences that a lot of the students bring to the classroom. And like all f- folks, they're nuanced, right? They, they think about things, you know, they see, you know, potentially pros and cons and they see, uh, you know, how it impacts people differently. But on the whole, you know, I think there's a, there's a, a clear sense of, Hey, the city is changing rapidly and, and not for the people who were born and raised in the city. Yes. People who you know grew up in the city. Uh, it's changing and benefiting people who are moving in. And there's there's really isn't a ton of ill will, you know, occasional, but 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 it is a sense of hey, there's something that's not right about what's happening. And and that I think kind of then 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 translates into well, how do you do effective public policy to address that? Mm-hmm. So I mean, a couple of initiatives that I've worked on is you know we, we worked on a bill to regulate um, Airbnb and short term rentals. Again, we think it's Airbnb is a good thing for people to do, but we wanted to end with sort of what we were seeing in Jersey City was sort of basically, you know, kind of corporate sort of shadow hotels. I'm going to buy a hundred units or rent out a hundred units of, and all turn them into hotels. So this is not, I'm renting out my basement apartment or I'm renting out, you know, my house when I go on on a summer vacation, if I'm a teacher, this was, you know, sort of taking housing units off the market and turning them into hotels at a wide scale. We worked out a right to counsel bill that we just passed this summer. So guaranteeing tenants access to an attorney if they face eviction or the landlord is failing to maintain the habitability of the apartment. You know, not dealing with a rodent infestation, not fixing major appliances, because we are seeing obviously landlords trying to push tenants out um, so they can raise the rent um, on the next tenant based on the way our, our rent laws are written. So, like those policies sort of come from many ways talking to students, yeah, hearing what they're thinking and feeling and, and how they're seeing where, where the city is going. So, I think that that has been part of it. Yeah, I think the other piece of it too is you know you, you're in the political world and so. You sort of get um, used to the way politics are done, and then you kind of come back to the students, and they give you this sort of cross-eyed look of like, "That's nuts! <laughs> like, that's not. Right. That, what are you talking about? Right? You know, especially especially in New Jersey, where kind of the machines are so strong. So I was, I was explaining to them how yeah. a certain elected official has a certain law office and and gets millions of dollars of contracts because people are hiring his law office to curb mm. influence with his public service. Yeah. And like, that's just like a thing in New Jersey. It's a thing in lots of States, I should say, like lots of, lots of politicians. Right. But New, I mean, New Jersey has a lot and you know, you, you sort of, there's no way that this is the way it should be. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you explain this to the students and they're like, wait, are you telling me that he's just getting personally millions of dollars every year in law contracts just because of his public position? And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what's happening. And they're like, okay, well, that's, that doesn't sound like the way we should be. And I'm like, you're right. It isn't the way it should be. You know, New Jersey, for the, the non-New Jersey listeners, we have a, a ballot system where the only one of the 50 states where county parties can basically rig the ballot through the ballot design and award the preferred candidates what's called the ballot line. Studies have shown that it basically yeah. gives candidates up to 38% or on average 38% uh, mm-hmm. advantage over their opponents, which is extraordinary advantage, right? You try to get to 50, you get 38% at the start, you're, you're, you're a long, so long, long way there. Yeah. And again, you explain, you kind of have to explain to students, and this is actually how the system works here, right? We have these entrenched political machines. And, you know, again, there's so much pressure when you're in the system to just sort of acquiesce to the system as it is. Mm-hmm. And they're a really great check on that to say, look, no, that is a, that is a, you know, I don't, I don't, worry, I don't want to curse on the podcast, but it's like, you know, that's a screwed up way to run a, a political yeah, system. And yeah. when you explain, you, you get, get their take on it and then it kind of you know, reinforces, you know, my job to, to help, you know, fight and push back against that. Yeah. I mean, it fascinates me, right? Because I imagine from yeah. you studying politics in college to being that Coral Fellow in St. Louis and then yep. now teaching it and practicing it and like, 
What things did you learn on the job that were different than what you learned from like being in school and like being in the fellowship there? You're like, whoa, I wish I'm now taking that back to teach these things because people yeah. need to understand this is the way things really run. Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the first is just like a clear eyed definition of power. Um, and then examples of how yeah, power yeah. is exercised. Oh, yeah. I, I, look, I look back at my, my kind of collegiate and even my a little bit less grad school, but both. I look at kind of my collegiate and grad school public policy educations. A lot of really valuable discussion of what's good public policy. And you need that because if you're in public service, you don't have a sense of what good policy is. You're, you're you know, not going to do good by, and not do right by folks. But it, too often the conversations are really devoid of like a real hard look at how do people acquire power and, and what do they do with it? And, you know, I teach my students, literally, it's the first class I teach every student, no matter what the course is, it's just like a definition of power, the ability to do. And then we talk about different aspects of power, you know, organize money, organize people, and then the rules of the system. And then we use examples throughout the course of how people acquire power and then how they use it. And that that's the thing where I don't think looking back, that's not true, there were one or two courses, but it was the exception to the rule. Yeah, uh, the Power was not at the forefront of every piece of political education, and it should be, because it Power is, you know, the the the, the drive behind uh, uh, political life, and then the whole point is the whole point is like, well, how do you how do you acquire power ethically and use it ethically while you're mm. also being effective and doing it? That's that's the that's the true challenge of public service. Yes. right. It's not to pretend power doesn't exist or or hide behind it. It's to understand it, acquire it in an you know ethical, thoughtful way, and then use it effectively. But um, I, I do feel like that was missed in my education, and it's a thing that I try to bring to the classroom. That reminds me so much of what I learned in Coral Leadership New York, that the very tenet of the Coral education was teaching the power and privilege analysis of city government. And when yeah. I went through Leadership New York, I mean, it was like eyes wide open, first of all, looking yeah. at budget, that the budget is the way to understand what city government's priorities are. And a budget of any entity or any person is to get a sense of their priorities without even talking to them. But secondly, how those priorities come into existence then becomes the understanding of how power and privilege manifest for those things to get locked into budget and starting yeah. to get locked into the systems of city government. That's right. And you're talking about how much like you're trying to do with affordable housing. I would say that yeah. as a, you know, a Jersey City resident, that's something that I certainly have privileged being a homeowner here in Jersey City with my missus, but watching the tenor of Jersey City now year 15 that I've been here, mm -hmm. Jersey City feels different because it is. It just, it's such a different feel. And I, I, I personally, as a citizen of Jersey City, go back and forth between, I don't know if I want to go back to 05 Jersey City when I would walk down Columbus Drive and be like, ooh, this is a little lot unsafe, right? Or the perception of feeling unsafe, right? To mm -hmm. today where it's like, oh, I generally feel like I could walk around most times at night or during the day, yet at the same yeah. time I watch what has happened where I'm like, wow, stuff is so much more expensive. The feeling, and I'm sure James, this is something you know, the history of downtown. I mean, the history of downtown and, you know, just folks who've been around, especially I would say the Latinx population that used to be such a big part of downtown. I've just seen like, it's frayed. Yeah. So, I mean, what, how are you like thinking of dressing that like in your current role and like, what are some of the restrictions you even have in your role to do that? Absolutely. That's no, a great question. And I think that the goal to strive for, and, I, and it's always a goal to strive for because there, there's, you know, Lots of challenges to get yeah. in, but it, it's to it's to revitalize a community, to, to have it benefit 
everybody. I mean, every person deserves to walk down a street and feel safe. And th- the way to solve that problem is not to, to change the people living in the community. It's to provide the core public service of public safety to every single resident in the city. So to me, it's like what we have to strive to do is, is the best at all possible policies to keep people in their homes and to provide them with the government that they deserve. You know, kind of one of the things I say, which I, I genuinely believe is Jersey, Jersey City deserves a government as good as its people. Jersey City is a truly special place. You know, when I ask my students uh, the first day of class, I'm like, you know, what's what's the great best thing about living where you live? And for my Jersey City students, almost universally, the answer is how diverse the city is. Big deal. Oh, almost you. universally. Yes. All, Same here. You know, Jersey City is truly extraordinarily diverse. Yeah. And it's appreciated. This, like, like it's not a, it's not a, that's not a, like a, a slogan that, you know, folks at City Hall like. It's actually a thing that you ask people who grew up here, what's the thing you love the most about the city? That yeah. that comes up for so many of them. And so what we have to do is put all the policies in place to preserve it. So on my mind, that's, you know, housing policy. Um, we should have some of the strongest tenant protections in the country. Yes. Um, but then we also have to continue to build housing supply because we need to ensure that we have new new apartments. And, and then the thing we acknowledge is that it's all with, not all within our control. That's one of the things that city government is your downstream of things more powerful than you. So we can't change New York City's policies. You know, New York City's policies may push gentrification to Jersey City, makes makes our job harder. So we acknowledge that, but we still try to do everything in our power to serve people effectively. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I ran was, you know, this was back in, in you know, now it's a nearly a decade ago, but 2014, 2015, I saw some real estate development deals go through in depth in a place that had some of the most valuable real estate in the country yeah. without any affordable housing in it. I said, wait a second. A developer is going to get to build higher, so they're going to build more. They're going to get a tax break, a tax abatement, and we're not requiring them to build affordable units. This is nuts. And then you would look and see that that developer had donated a bunch of money to super PACs and a bunch of donations to, to campaign accounts. So, okay, well, that, that's, that's how the system is, right? Yeah. The system is those with power, with organized money, are able to, to make you know government work for them, but not for the broader population. Yeah. And that was really what I ran to change. And, you know, I made a promise, which I've stuck to, not to take money from Jersey City real estate developers, not because I'm against development. There are projects that I've supported because I think they meet the standard of, does, is this in the public's interest? Yeah. But I'm not uh, not willing to, uh, you know, just, you know, let it, uh, let folks get what they want or, or kind of game the system, uh, which is what I think is, you know, you've got to push back again. So I think that gets to kind of, uh, hopefully the core of what you asked of, how do you serve people? In the city, as it changes, how do you, you know, do everything in your power to make the government work for them? Yeah, and so I, I have just totally admired right your stance on not accepting money from Jersey City real estate developers because as I've, as a citizen yeah. and someone who follows a lot of stuff nationally, particularly in the world of K twelve education and social impact, I think yeah. something that I will say that's obvious to you may not be obvious to our listeners is that yeah. what I've observed within Jersey City is that. It is really hard to accumulate power and money in Jersey City if you don't get money from the real estate developers. That's just something I found out through a lot of different ways, particularly through a nonprofit that I know about, what I will not name, Mm -hmm. was looking at Jersey City as a potential place to come. And because the way the philanthropy works in Jersey City, see the real estate development or bust, they looked at the analysis and said, I don't think we should come here, which absolutely broke my heart. offline, we probably talk about who that is because you probably know who it is, right? And it's just yep. something where it's like, I mean, I, I'm going to ask like the, the helpless citizen, like, mm-hmm. how do we change that, James? Because it is something yeah. that yeah. I watch and I go, 
it makes me, it's one of the things being a citizen here in Jersey makes me feel really helpless of like, well, how do you fight that and like change the diversity portfolio of how power mm-hmm. is manifesting in Jersey City? Because that's something that's always bothered me. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, every place you have to do your, you know, power, political economy, power analysis. And for, you know, very interesting historical set of reasons, Jersey City's main industry is real estate development. And we don't have like big, you know, kind of industries. We have, you know, different corporations here and there, but but real estate yeah. is the dominant player here. And it creates a really interesting political dynamic, particularly because I mean, any place real estate and government tend to be intertwined with each other. So yes. for me, it's like, how, how do you do it? One is just whenever you can try to support kind of broader civil and civic society. We will be better 20, 30 years from now. So that was a long time frame. The more organizations you can build up that have some degree of independence, that have yeah. their own power bases. And then we have had a really wonderful community organizing group called Jersey City Together that has gone to the religious Mm -hmm. institutions of of New Jersey and organized to fight for affordable housing, to fight for the interests of kind of the working people of Jersey City. And and they've been very successful getting certain policies through. So, you know, you you do, you have to do community organizing. You have to organize um, in communities. And then I do think you have to have elected officials who are genuinely committed to the public's interest, right? You're going to have to work with whoever, but but you you gotta make sure that, you know, it, it does, like I do, you know, this is, I'm obviously an elected official, so I have a, I have a stake in believing this, but I truly believe <laughs> right. it does matter who you, it matters who you elect. No one's going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Everyone's flawed, uh, but you have to elect people whose fundamental orientation is towards service and not, not towards self or not towards power. That, that those are parts of it. Everyone has an ego. Everyone is trying to accomplish things, but right. That, so that, that to me are the ways you push back without, but understanding you're not going to, you're not going to change a system in a, in a fell swoop, yeah. which is an important understanding because, you know, Oftentimes, reformers will come into city government, you know, pronounce grand pronouncements, and then as soon as they get in, in office, be like, "Oh well, <laughs> get sucked into the machine, right?" You get, yeah, exactly. You get yeah. sucked in, so you have to you have to walk in with an understanding of, "I'm fighting for change. Here's my vision, uh, but we're we're on a path to get there, not a you know, I'm just saying these things, and then tomorrow I'll be off to do the next thing." Yeah, so I could talk to you about politics all day, James, and. You yeah. did mention something earlier that used to be a past love of mine for like seven or eight years. And it's not kids programming. I'm not asking about that. And I would ask you about <laughs> family, but I'll ask you about that later. Yeah. It's fantasy football. football Who's in a yes. fantasy football squad? So I have I have what's called the dynasty team, which is where you keep the players every <laughs> year. Oh, and, wow. And that is, and that, is, that is as nerdy as, nerdy as you can get. <laughs> and, is, and, I, and, I, and I love it. I love it yeah. because, uh. because you can uh, – you're strategic, you know, like if your team is bad, you try to kind of trade away your, your older players and you build for youth and things like that. But my, my core player, uh, I got Saquon Barkley as my, my running back, you know, tough season, but last year he brought me a championship and then a wide receiver of Justin Jefferson again, last year, phenomenal, best receiver in the league this year, injury plague. So it's been a, it's been a tough year. I'm four and seven. So this year didn't go well, but last year I won, I won the championship last year. Hmm. And how did you opt into this dynasty league? Who do you do it with? <laughs> so it's a high school friend of mine, a guy named Mike Esterbrooks. Okay. He probably started creating the league like right around when we were in college. We would hang out, you know, when we were back on winter break and things like that. So the league's been going on for a while now. And, uh, you know, I think we started as just like a regular league year to year. And then he's like, hey, you know, you guys want to like do it a little more serious? And, and we did it. And then over time, people come and go. So I actually added some friends of mine that Mike doesn't know to the league. And mm. uh, he's got some of his friends that I don't know. So it's kind of a, a cult, 
kind of a random uh, potpourri of, of guys who like football. And it's a funny group of guys. And, uh, it, you know, I just I love fantasy football. So it's a, it's a fun thing to be a part of. And, you know, I get to get to check the scores every Saturday and every Sunday, every Sunday and see how it's going. Isn't it crazy to think like it changes the way you watch football because you equate everything into the fantasy football point system? That's right. So yesterday I, was, I wanted Dak to hit Jake Ferguson, who's the tight end for the Cowboys, <laughs> because my tight end. And he got he had a lot of touchdown passes, but uh, Ferguson only had one catch. But it does. You watch every. You're like, where's my guy in the field? Like, is the play coming to him? You know. Yeah. Uh, you do. You do watch it with that lens, so makes it funny. But but all all in good fun. Yeah, it gives yeah. me uh, you know interest in the game. I'm a big Steelers fan. So uh, when the Steelers okay. are not playing, it gives me a, a you know fun thing to watch for. How did you become a Steelers fan growing up in New Jersey? There's a story there. Yeah. Well, look, I, f- I feel like I escaped the Jets. I feel like I think with respect, <laughs> with respect to all my friends who are Jets too. fans. <laughs> I know. With my, with my with respect to all my Jet fan friends, I feel like I dodged a, a bullet there. It's a very silly story, but basically when I, when I was six, I had a favorite baseball player, a guy named Wally Backman. He played for the Mets. Oh, my. Of course. Second utility, baseman. Utility yes. Fielder, yeah, he was yeah. On, the, on the 86 championship team, and he got yeah, traded man. to the Pirates only for a short time. But I was mad that they traded my favorite player. I was like, he's my favorite player. I can't go to Shea Stadium and watch him anymore. Um, I got to I gotta root for the Pirates now. And then, like, a year later, he got traded from the Pirates. But I was like, you know, the, this was, like, the early 90s. It was the last time the Pirates were good for a sustained period the of barry time. bonds bonilla vance like years oh vance yeah. like, mm-hmm. that's right Doug drayback yeah. so i was like you know yeah was like six or seven so i was like i'll just root for the pirates and then i just sort of became rooting for the steelers and the penguins so i'm a pittsburgh sports fan yeah like the steelers the penguins and the pirates are my my three teams well pirates are uh are, the pirates are the jets of baseball um so they're <laughs> they're rough but uh, but yeah. I'm not. The good news is my two my two big the sports I played growing up the sports I'm passionate about are football and hockey. So I've gotten very lucky. Uh, the Steelers and Penguins have been really fun teams to root for. What a fascinating story to see. Since one of my best friends is has been a huge Patriots fan, and a lot of that has been centered around Tom Brady. And course, other yeah. than that, like she's a huge New York sports fan. So sports I always fan, give yeah. my friend a lot of ish. I'm just like. You're yeah. a traitor to your city. <laughs> She's like, That's right. <laughs> like what? I know. One of the most disturbing developments in the last five years <laughs> is Tom Brady becoming likable. Because it's like he actually has a pretty good sense of humor and he's funny. And I'm like, no, I just want to hate you. Stop it. Stop it. I don't stop being like, stop making me laugh. Like just be mm. the, the evil Patriots quarterback who cheats yeah. all the time. Just go back to that. Yeah. Well, who knows? Yeah. He might be due for a comeback and, uh, you know, some <laughs> pays him enough money. <laughs> Considering the uh, yeah, injuries in, uh, you know, number one quarterbacks, he might have a entry back to the league. I was say, unfortunately, I think he'd be better than the Steelers quarterback this year. So, we'd, you know, we'd take him if we had to. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys have Tomlin. So, I mean, as long as you have we Tomlin do. and then you have, you know, the great ownership of the Roonies, I think, you know, the Steelers are always – I think figure it out because they're a model franchise in the league. They'll always they'll always be competitive, which which is good. I mean, you're never. I, we've. I mean, gosh, last losing season, I was you know twenty years ago, something like that. I mean, it's nuts um, to have that type of consistency. Obviously, we want we want a little more playoff success. You know, get, get, we want to get back to being one of the true Super Bowl contenders. Um, and I think they. I mean, go, how nerdy you want to get? It's like I you know I think they had a great draft. I actually think they have a really good team. The thing they're missing is the quarterback position. If they think if they if they either this guy Kenny Pickett improves or they find a new one, yeah. I actually think they'd be I think they'd be close. I think they're I think they're they're a quarterback away from truly being a contender. So 
Hopefully, yeah. knock on wood, we can get there. Yeah, that's what fascinates me about the league is that it was it's always been, not always, in the last 10 plus years, especially as rules to protect the quarterback have increased to make the play a lot more quote unquote mm-hmm. dynamic and not having people's heads cut off, right? That mm-hmm. it has become a heavily quarterback driven league. You don't have a mm-hmm. great, and this is the, the funny part is we go into like 90s NFL, some of the great mobile quarterbacks, yeah. Cunningham, right? right? Even a Warren Moon, right? The, right? You know, and they never won the big thing. Although I would say they were in, in my eyes of like watching now, you know, your Mahomes and your Josh Allen's and Jalen Hurts. I'm like, wait a second, those quarterbacks existed in the and the game has changed so much. You don't have a great mobile quarterback. Your team yeah. might make the playoff, but it's not going to go very far. No, it's true. I, yeah, no, I mean, they made the rules a little, little, you know, they made them better for the quarterback. So that mobile quarterback gives you, I mean, it's a, it's an extra runner on the field. You get an extra blocker if your quarterback is running. It's, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge advantage. And, you know, you know, and the guys like Mahomes who, you know, are, are great from the pocket and hurts, but they can run. Um, they can run either designed or, or just scramble and they make, it makes their, they're tough to beat. They're really tough to beat those quarterbacks. Yeah, hopefully that will become Daniel Jones if he comes back from yeah, his knees. But I don't I know. Think, I, <laughs> I think the Giants are. I think I think Giants are going to look at a quarterback in the draft. You know, I think you're, so. you're that. You're that. You're that. You know, they're going to get a top five pick. You gotta. I think like a guy go quarterback. Yeah, I'm. Um, ever since Eli retired, the Giants have just been in a tailspin and a half. We have not been able to figure it out, and it just goes back to like. Having a quarterback you can, you know, drive the franchise through. Without that, yeah. it just falls apart real fast. Exactly. Yeah. It, really, it really does. Well, James, we're at that part of the podcast where I want to ask you the other question I ask all of my guests. What is your rendering? What's the lesson or value you'd like to share with the audience? That's a great question. What I'm going to say is I think things that I've said before, but it's one that's, that is true, which is, you know, I have been really kind of lucky and blessed in my sort of public service world. Uh, but the lesson or value that, that matters the most is, is to always put family first. And again, it's a simple thing. It's the thing that's said many times. I will be the, you know, 10,000th person who will say it. But, you know, when I was sick and was going through my, I was going through cancer, right? I was going through chemo and radiation. You know, the person who got me through it was Gabby, my wife, uh, more than anyone. I just had lots of support from family and friends. But, you know, her, her love and support was what was crucial. And then, you know, we have an extraordinary family. We have three beautiful daughters. And they're, you know, the thing that kind of makes life meaningful and, and worth pursuing. And so I don't have good answers for the challenges of how do you balance, you know, pursuing professional ambitions, which are important, and, and pursuing good public service, which requires time and effort, um, with balancing how to be a committed father and, and a committed husband. But I think you just, you live in that challenge and it's how you kind of get yourself through it. So. That to me is always the, has always been most important. And I think I've always been very clear and upfront with everybody that that's always the thing that I'm going to put first in my, in my kind of, in the way I live my life. Amen to that, James. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have yeah. to have another podcast episode because something that's been front of mind for me are yeah. what continued policies we can set to make yeah. sure that this idea of family first is really true because your story as a politician or anyone is in a leadership role that you're often pulled in 80 different directions and yet the policies mm-hmm. and systems that I think could end up being really beneficial 
just aren't a part of the city of any city's fabric or state's fabric as much, right? You know, especially around childcare. You know, when I was doing my own history um, uh, research around in World War II, there used to be not national childcare. That's right. And I didn't know that. I was like, wait, what? Right. And once World War II ended, it slowly but surely got dissolved. And I think one of the things they often see time and time again, and I think you would appreciate this as a family man, is how much being able to balance career and who is taking care of your children. Yeah. Like it oftentimes means that there's extraordinary sacrifice that so many of us have to do in order to have thriving families and thriving careers that the usual underbelly of the conversation is all the sacrifice and I'll be, may I dare say, tension to be able yeah. to make those things happen. They're, they're very tough things to, to have happen. Agreed, agreed. And then, you know, gets to where the public policy is so important. I mean, having, you know, it's like, you know, you asked me before I had kids, do I support parental leave? I would have been sure, of course. But having kids, you're like, no, no, like this, this policy needs to be better, right? You know, the U.S. is this sort of outlier in the developed world around paid parental leave. And, um, you know, that, that's obviously an example, and it's an example more on the national level. But then, you know, you mentioned childcare, right? It's so expensive for families, and yet yes. the workers are paid so little. It, it's hard to get spaces. It's hard to, to figure out the regulations. You know, these are not, you know, kind of um, topics that I, I have, like, deep, deep knowledge on, but I know how important they are. And they're ones that uh, having policies to help people have families really makes sense. The one that I'll add is an old grad school thing that I, I remember from studying it is that, the one thing that helps families is just giving folks more money that they showed that uh, this was a, again, an old study from 12 years ago. So my details may be a little little fuzzy, but yeah. my memory is that um, increases in the earned income tax credit. So you know, basically just cash to people mm. who are you know, working, increased rates of, of marriage and family happiness. So I do think that like part of it is, you know, you, you put so much stress on families. How do you raise your kids? How do you put food on the table? The, the more government just also helps people at a very basic level will also help that too. But yes, that is, this is all for, a, 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 we can do a whole nother hour on, yeah. <laughs> on all this, which is really important. Yeah. yeah. So James, before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to promote going on in your world? Sure. So um, one of the things you learn in politics is you always ask people for help and for money and for support. You never, you never get shy about that. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah. I, I'm a current city councilman. My term ends in 2025. Um, I have to make a decision in 25 about whether I run for re-election or I run for mayor. Uh, in Jersey City, we have an open uh, mayoral seat. Our mayor is running for governor. Um, so I am seriously looking at that run. Uh, haven't made my final decision yet. But if for anything I said uh, stuck with you, anything that I said that you found meaningful, uh, I would appreciate your support. And so my, I have a website. It's Solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, 4JC, F-O-R-J-C dot com. And you can sign up to volunteer. You can make a donation. I do, you know, very proud that through my time in office, I've, I've built a large donor base that's outside of the political establishment. So lots of people donate 25 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, whereas the vast, vast majority of New Jersey politicians base their whole fundraising on $5,200 donations and $2,600 donations and $1,000 donations. And I certainly get a few of those, but 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 way less than the average politician here. So. If you're able to make a donation or you want to sign up to volunteer or you have a policy idea you want to send us, please go to the website and uh, let us know. Awesome. 
James, selfishly, um, I will put this in the public. Uh, I hope you do run for mayor, but I know there's a lot Thank of calculus you. to figure out for that. Very calculus. Uh, so, well, I, yeah. I will. I will wait for whatever you decide and support you and your beautiful family either way, whatever the decision that you make. But. James, thank you for spending time with me this morning to talk on the Ronda Rings podcast. I'll certainly see you in the streets of Jersey City for sure. Mm. And Ronda Rings universe, as I tell you all, in the words of Coach Prime, who I know folks are down on, but I don't bet against Deion Sanders, let's be clear. And I've been saying it on every right. podcast is we keep coming on this podcast. More amazing guests like James Solomon. Um, keep coming on this podcast. So keep listening, keep supporting, and peace out, y'all. Thank you, James, for spending time with me today on the Ronda Rings podcast. Learned a lot about you. I didn't know you were a fantasy football fan. Makes me want to get back into that game and spend some time watching football with a lot more intensity and being able to turn yardage and scores into fantasy football points, which for me is a skill that uh, I need to dust off. But nonetheless, just appreciate how much you talked about your love of civil service and why politics and our own, uh, from my citizen perspective, why it matters to be involved and, and how you serve. So thank you for your generosity there. Ron Dering's fam, as I keep telling y'all, we coming, we coming. More incredible episodes of folks like James Solomon coming soon. Peace.